good evening, everybody. Uh, or, well, I guess, good evening or good morning, depending upon where you are in the world. We just did one with a, a UK author, so, and we in have- Rome. He wasn't even in the UK, Patrick, he was in Rome. Shoot, you're right, gosh. And then uh, <laughs> Stefania was tuning in from Italy, too. Um, we, it's, it's great. We have people all over the globe that are watching. But um, anyway, I'm Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we are delighted to have our friend Deanna Rayborn back with us to talk about the new Veronica Speedwell novel, Sinister Revenge. And um, if you have questions for Deanna, go ahead and put them in the comments field. And I'll be happy to pop back on screen towards the end of the hour and ask them. And we should have our signed copies any moment. Um, so I'll put, a, I'll put a link also, should you wish to uh, purchase one. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you, Patrick. So I'm holding up my advanced reading copy, so the cover won't be quite as glorious as in the finished book. But Deanna, you've talked about your covers and the artists and so forth. You obviously really like the way they've been depicting your stories, right? Oh, I love them. First of all, thank you guys so much for having me back. You know I love the pen. I love the pen. The only thing that would make this better is if I were there in person, uh, getting to enjoy your 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 gorgeous Scottsdale weather. I do. I love these covers. I've got you can see over my shoulder what the finished color looks like, but it has. I think these covers are just so gorgeous because they always have a little Veronica silhouette. So we've always got that that beautiful little almost paper doll effect of who yeah. she is. And then they always give me some gorgeous evocative color. And then there's always a cool little hint of the setting and some sort of amazing motif. And this time we've got fossils. They gave me my tiny fossils. Indeed they did, right here. I love them. There's a, it's actually, yeah, um, including there's a snail um, and a fish. Gorgeous stuff. I know I, they did such a great job, and it's always uh, I get such a kick when they show me the uh, the concepts for the first time, because I always think, oh, they can't possibly top the book that they just did, and every single time, it ends up the the new book is my favorite. So I don't know how they're doing it, but they're knocking it out of the park. Well, the colors are gorgeous. I agree, and I I like her butterfly net, you know, because that always. Is <laughs> One of the few respectable occupations that a young woman in the Victorian age could actually pursue. Um, it was. It was respectable and it was lucrative. Um, was, you could yeah. you could make if you were out hunting butterflies, which, you know, of course, the 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 Victorian middle classes were were up and coming and they were trying to adopt a lot of the habits and and hobbies of their social betters. And one of those things was natural history. There was a huge passion for natural history. And so a lot of folks became butterfly collectors. And if you couldn't go out and net your own or you couldn't get to the places that had the really exotic varieties, you would order them, you know, uh, kind of like putting in a, a, an order to um to your favorite you know like with me it's Nordstrom it, it you know I go in and click a button on Nordstrom and in two days I have what I want people would do that with butterflies um and so you would have people like Veronica Speedwell going around the world with their little butterfly nets and coming back with these incredibly exquisite specimens and you know somebody like Veronica could sell them for three guineas each which in you know for context yeah. a lady's maid would make 90 guineas a year so you could you could have a really, really lucrative kind of self-sustaining way of life if you went out and you know searched the world. And it was a it was a really 
very cheap prospect uh, too. You know, your overhead was not very high. You needed a net, you needed a killing jar, you needed um, minutin, which are the little pins with no heads on them. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a little bit of gear like that and you were good to go. Well, that's true. I and mean, you also got to do exotic travel, but that was another real feature of Victorian England was, you know, Sons of Empire went out to conquer, but there were plenty of mm. people who went out to explore or, you know, acted as missionaries or did all sorts of things. That's a fascinating age, you know, really remarkable. Um, England it, was, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the engine of the Industrial Revolution really was a lot of it, if not most of it, was definitely in England, which powered up and produced enough income for, you know, people to do things. Like, like, have you been to the British Museum and seen some of their, you know, they still have trays and trays and trays of um, natural. They do. They have like all of the things that, you know, between that museum and their Natural History Museum and the V&A, you know, there, there are all sorts of specimens. Um, you know, you've got collections, like the, the actual things Darwin brought home on the Beagle. Um, so it, it's amazing the things that you can see. And, and most cases, the natural historians were after understanding the natural world. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the other explorers, especially the missionaries were out to colonize and, you know, just bring back whatever they could. In the cases of a lot of the natural historians, especially the later part of the Victorian era, they were looking to figure out how to conserve. You know, it's fascinating to think that the conservation movement, that's not something that's brand new. That was going around. Your, your mid to late Victorians were already figuring out how do we make people care about habitat? How do we make people care about these animals that are, that are not going to be around anymore? Well, let's show them a specimen. Let's show them how amazing it is. And, you know, maybe that will be enough where they can say, oh, I saw it here. I know about it. I don't need to go out and kill anymore, or I need to preserve its habitat. And you know they were. It, it was a time when when there was a huge push for um, universal education as well. So it was a means of educating people who would have never had the opportunity to see these things because either they couldn't manage the travel or because they wouldn't have had access to the private collections, which is where all of these things were prior to this time. I love the way that the aristocracy actually collected them in what they call cabinets of curiosity, which is where the modern museum largely arises. Um, oh, they're yeah. fascinating. They're yeah. absolutely fascinating. And, and the fact that they actually started off as cabinets, like it would start off as a real, piece real of furniture in your drawing room is what they were. You know, you could invite people in for tea and then you could, you know, open up this cabinet in your wooden cabinet. In your drawing It's like room. your house where there are lots of cool things sitting around on the shelves. And you can say, true. hey, this is an awesome thing. It's true because I've seen some of the gorgeous stuff you've picked up on your travels and you're like this piece of art. I got this in New Zealand. Um, and it's 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 a way of, of, you know, for people to share the world with the folks that they bring into their homes. It was a way, you know, for people, they became really, really big in the 1600s. Um, and those 17th century, there were rich merchants in, in Holland doing it. There were aristocrats in England doing it. And it was a way of showing off your wealth. It was a way of showing how cultured you were. It was a way of showing, um, I think in most cases, this is my taste. This is what appeals to me, you know, so it was a way to really get to know people when you went into their home is to see this beautiful piece of furniture and the furniture was exquisite. They were usually just incredible examples of uh, the cabinet makers art. And then they expanded and because some collectors had too much for one piece of furniture. So it became a room, 
And then it became multiple rooms. And then before you know it, people are establishing private museums. Um, and that's exactly how they started, which is, is so funny to think about because I don't think most folks ever stop to wonder why did we start putting pictures and sculptures and you know, uh, trophy mounts of animals? Why did we start putting them in, in giant places and opening them up to the public? How did that come about? And it started off that, that private collectors wanted to share what they had. It's very true. And now we have a whole thing going on about museum politics and, you know, expropriation and whatever, but we're not going there. What we're going to talk <laughs> about is Veronica. And um, all of that fits into, I was just saying to Deanna before we started, March is Women's History Month, but tomorrow, no, Thursday, Thursday's the 8th. What's today? The 7th? Today's the 7th. It is tomorrow then. It's International Women's Day. And the it's a hashtag I think it's called equal equity. But anyway, it's it's designed to make everything more inclusive. And you know, Veronica is such a a brave and unconventional spirit that she's a wonderful exemplar, I think, of the kind of thing that International Women's Day and Women's History Day is um showcasing to remind us that, you know, even though women often had very passive roles which is actually a thesis in this book is <laughs> any kind of agency, you know, how, um, how much can they in fact direct their own lives, which is a, still a huge question, even in the more enlightened Victoria age. But Veronica has seized the moment um, given her unconventional background. So we can at least talk about that, right? Cause that's not a spoiler. That is not a spoiler. No, she, um, this is her eighth adventure and Veronica is, who she always was. She's a person who is very much um, a director of her own life. You know, she seizes opportunities and she she is not who you think of when you think of the typical Victorian woman, but she was not so much of an outlier that she's a complete fabrication of my imagination. You know, she she was inspired by actual women who were going around exploring the world, who were, um, you know, joining archaeological digs or who were bringing back natural history trophies or who were studying ethnobotany around the world because they wanted to get out there and see for the first time, you know, because in the, in the 18th century, it was the men going abroad and having the grand tours while the women sat at home for the most part. You know, they didn't have that sort of an education. And, and with the advent of much less expensive travel, and, you know, kind of the, the changing of, of social expectations in a way where a woman could travel on her own um, if she was smart, if she was resourceful, if she was uh, a, a more than a little bit brave, she could get away with doing this on her own. And a lot of women seize the opportunity to do that. Um, and, you know, in many cases, they were doing it because they just felt stifled at home. They felt suffocated. And the idea of of women's rights has never been just a complete onward and upward trajectory. It's always, it's the pendulum that swings and then it swings back a little bit and then it swings forward and it swings back a little bit. And, you know, I, I it took me a long time to realize in my own lifetime that things were going to backslide and that, you know, you, every generation has to kind of make progress. And unfortunately, sometimes they have to make progress in ground that's already been broken. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Veronica and, and the women like her were certainly breaking new ground uh, in the places they went, the things that they saw and did. 
Well, you gave her an unconventional background. She doesn't come from um, a family where, you know, two parents and normal expectations and so forth, because she's illegitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, having grown up without that kind of family weight on her, you know, she was able to forge her own path in a way that other women in this book and in other books where she's been featured don't get to do that. Um, it's hard to fight your own family. You know, it is. It is an outlier in society than it is to be an outlier in your own home. That's so true because I don't think there's any greater pressure than than you know that which comes within those four walls. Um, but the interesting thing when I started to study Victorian female explorers is how many of them took to the road um, and had to do it almost as a means of self-preservation that they were being so completely smothered by these very tiny expectations for a very, very tiny life, but they took so much out of them. You know, if you had a sister-in-law who did not have a husband, she was the person you called when you were having another baby and you needed free childcare for the six kids you already had. You know, if, if she was the last child left at home, she was the one who took care of the ailing father. Um, or the, you know, the, the mother who absolutely um, was hypochondriacal and, and wouldn't move a foot without somebody waiting on her all the time. Uh, and and those, are, those are all things that are actually based on women that I studied. Uh, Isabella Bird, in particular, is one who um, went all over the Southwest of the United States. She, you know, rode up Pikes Peak when it was in snow. Fascinating, fascinating woman. And yet, she was practically hypochondriacal when she was at home. She would get home and say, oh my God, my back is out. I can't, I can't get out of bed. And the minute she got out of the UK, she's, she's riding horseback, you know, for 20, 30, 40 miles a day with no problem whatsoever. And I think those emotional burdens just weighed these women down so much that it, it was a case of either get out or die. Well, you know, you can look at Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I think is really interesting. She wasn't a Victorian, I mean, a, mm -hmm. an explorer. She wasn't mm -hmm. a naturalist, you know, but um, it took it took Robert to whisk her away to Florence and get her out of, you know, that whole environment when she got to be really creative. Um, also, if you're talking about England, the climate is, was <laughs> we were still in the in the little ice age, yeah, Victorian years. So the climate was so beastly that no wonder people wanted to go to Egypt or Syria or somewhere. Well, and lung complaints, country. you know, the lung complaints were off the charts because of, of you know, pollution cool. at the time because of all the coal fires. And, and so there were absolutely legitimate reasons where you would feel like hammered hell if you were in the UK. And then you would feel much better if you went to the desert Southwest or to Egypt, like you said, or, or even just getting on a ship and getting out to see and getting that fresh air. Yeah, but I, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, when you were stuck at home in that role, you weren't valued for anything other than self-sacrifice, regardless of what would have made you happy, regardless of what your interests were. And I think these women who took to the road were finally able to please themselves and think about themselves and you know, they, they weren't just playing a role. I, it, it, it always surprises me even now when I look at a, at a woman's biography on Twitter or another place of social media, and it will have everything listed as to who she is in relationship to other people. 
but nothing about what makes her happy or what her hobbies are or what her interests are. It's like, I'm a mom of this many, I'm wife to this person. Okay, but who are you besides that? You know, because at some point, the children are not going to be in the nest anymore. At some point, the marriage may not be there. Who, who else are you? Um, and so for me, being able to explore who these women are outside of roles that are so rigidly defined, you know, exploring who they are in themselves is, is just absolutely fascinating. Well, one of, the, one of the really great things about reading about Veronica is how she, you know, she's dancing alive between forming attachments and remaining independent, um, which which is a difficult line to draw. And especially in an era where, well, apparently she's past that, but in an era where contraception was not any guarantee, but so yeah. far Veronica has been able to have a robust sex life without actually getting pregnant. So, you she know. Has, but I mean, again, that's based on fact there, yeah. you know, the, the, the actual lepidopterist who was an inspiration for Veronica did not get pregnant and she had relationships out of right. the bounds of marriage. And so it's, it's not, I almost said it's not inconceivable, but that would have been a terrible pun. So we're not going to go there. But it, it, it is not out of the realm of possibility for a woman to have had a sex life and not gotten pregnant. Well, it would have been rare. No, it's absolutely. But absolutely it's possible. Yeah. And, and, you know, there even now we don't still know 100 percent about all of the things that women talked about when it came to things like menstruation, contraception, menopause, because right. Those are things that women are talking about in private. They're not things that they're writing down. They're not things, you know, the people who study these things, Kate Lister is an amazing historian about all things sexual and physical throughout history. And she she digs and digs and digs to find the information that that she shares because it's just not as readily available as so much of the other stuff that Victorians, I mean, and Victorians talked about everything but they tended to draw the line when it came to things like that. So figuring out exactly what people were up to and how often they were using birth control and, and what methods they were trying, it's, it's not information that is as readily available um, to the casual uh, you know, Victorian uh, fan as some of the other things are. Well, I'm sure you're right, but Emmy one choice was simply not to marry. Um, you know, and therefore avoid the whole, you know, the whole baby machine kind of thing. Um, Absolutely. I really remember the name of the woman who was the inspiration for Elizabeth Peters' Amelia Peabody series. I've forgotten her name, but anyway, um, she was a married woman that went exploring up the Nile and so forth. And Amelia um, B. Edwards. That's it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah. they embraced um, what's my word? Abstinence. Um, because yeah. there was no, you know, super guarantee. And yeah, so that was, I mean, that's absolutely true. There were what they called Josephite or white marriages where the partners would enter into it with the understanding that there would not be full sexual intercourse because they did not want to take the risks of pregnancy um, because it was, you know, still such a dangerous undertaking for a woman. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, it's always fascinating to me to look at, at someone like Jane Austen, who had the opportunity to marry, chose not to. And you look around at her sisters-in-law, you look at how many of the women she knew died in childbirth, and you're thinking, I don't, I don't blame her. You know, yeah. you look at those odds, they're not great. Well, you can go all the way back to Elizabeth I, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to this one. Uh, and 
We're in Bavaria, which I think is a so for a very short period of time. We're in Bavaria. I know, but I love Bavaria. And in fact, Steve Barry just wrote a book, which we had here at the store called The Last Kingdom, which was in fact about uh, King Ludwig in Bavaria and the castles and the whole bit. And it's a part of Germany I've spent a lot of time in. But um, she and Tiberius. Well, so let's talk about Stoker's family for a minute, because we sort sure. of we need to know who they are before we can talk about why she's in Bavaria with Tiberius. Who is Tiberius? So Tiberius, Tiberius is Stoker's older brother, Veronica's uh, sidekick in all things romantic and detective is uh, Stoker, and his older brother is a Viscount. He's the head of the family. He is um, someone on my Twitter feed referred to him as a chaos monkey, and he absolutely is. He is he is uh, a force of nature, and I love Tiberius. Um, I, I love to kind of go in every couple of books and just let him off the leash. Uh, because he's just fun to write about. And so uh, at the beginning of this book, he and Veronica have spent a few months together um, in Italy, butterfly hunting and, you know, enjoying La Dolce Vita. And uh, then it's time to um, kind of gather in the troops and go home. So he wants to collect Stoker, who has been incommunicado for a couple of months um, in, in Bavaria. Stoker's been sulking, right, for various yes. reasons. And um, Veronica knows that. Um, but I love the way they, they have their encounter in Bavaria because there's a kind of like a, what is it, a, a, a woodsman, you know, some almost mythical creature in the woods with matted hair and a matted beard and, you know, generally covered <laughs> in vines and unbathed and sort of generally horrible. And the minute that the minute that Veronica hears that about this creature, she knows she's found Stoker. <laughs> well, it's a, you know, it's a throwback to the very first time she met him in the first book in the series, A Curious Beginning, where he, I mean, he was almost feral at that point, you know, working in his studio by himself. He didn't, he didn't, you know, have much of a relationship with anybody uh, at that point. He was, he was having, again, having a sulk uh, and he was throwing himself into his work and neglecting his self-care very badly. <laughs> Indeed so. So because this is an aristocratic family where there is presumably money, Tiberius, you know, has the freedom to do what he pleases. He is also unmarried and in theory, at least he doesn't have legitimate children. And Stoker is also unmarried and doesn't have children. And in fact, probably isn't really a Revelstone. Um, but, you know, that's his story. But there's, isn't there a brother in the middle that has children? There is, there is. There is a brother in the middle who has been knighted. So he is right. Sir Rupert um, and Rupert has children. So the line of succession for this, right. this Viscountcy has actually been uh, secured. But I mean, who knows what's going to happen with Tiberius? He well, can, that's he, true. But it's one He could end up married, you know, next book. We don't know. Well, no, only you know. <laughs> but, but the thing is, Tiberius can run off the leash like this and have this hedonistic life with, you know, without family responsibility because his middle brother has, in fact, achieved that for him. It would be a whole different thing if there were no other, you know, other brothers and the whole thing was a burden to him. But that's not the case. So anyway. no, and it's it's fascinating to see that the you know, when you go back, I know we're not going back to the Middle Ages, but I was literally just reading about how 
many times it happened that an older brother had um, was either disinclined to marry or um, had a wife who never conceived and a younger brother was forcibly removed from the church in order to take take on the responsibility of the 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 family title and the estate and everything that went with it because of course if you have a country estate everybody in the vicinity is dependent upon that family for their livelihood and so it was a it was a um, a huge responsibility if you were a member of one of these noble families to be uh you know a, a good landlord a good steward of the 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 acreage a good um you know a good patron to everybody and benefactor uh to everybody around you and and tiberius has been a little bit lax in that regard from time to time but we get to visit the family home in this one. We do. It's the first time. I know. And it's on the cliffs. It's on it's a seaside estate and it's on cliffs. And inside the cliffs are a wondrous thing. Wondrous things. They have fossils. This is this is where the rhyme she sells seashells by the seashore came right. from, was from Mary Anning, who was another one of these intrepid women we love to read about. Um, and uh, again, right around the time of Jane Austen, so a good 70 years before our story, she was climbing around the cliffs um, in Devon and, and finding these incredible fossils. And what you did at the time is you would chisel them out of a mountain because there was no proper scientific study of them being done where they were. You chiseled them out and you sent them to museums, you sold them to collectors. And that's exactly how Mary Anning made a living. She started as a child, scampering around these cliffs, chiseling things out, and you know, made made quite a a name for herself uh, because she discovered fossils of, you know, creatures that nobody even imagined were there. So she is uh, another one of these incredible women who's well worth reading about. Well, the geography of England, which is an island, but at one point, you know, the English Channel was not there. It, it eventually cut through. Um, so it's rich in limestone, rich in chalk caves and cliffs, rich in fossils. So, you know, it's an ideal place for somebody um, to, to make those kinds of discoveries, which is so cool. But anyway, we, we get to visit the Revelstone Vane State in Devon, where this is all occurring. But first, First, they have to come back once they found each other in Bavaria and persuaded Stoker to return with him. Where is it that Veronica and Stoker actually live? Because they don't live on the Revelstone Vane estate, which is Tiberius's. They, they live on a different estate for a different aristocrat. They do. They actually live in the middle of London. They live in a part of London called Marlebone, which is um, the estate that they live in belongs to the Earl of Rosemorin, and it is called Bishop's Folly. And it is kind of a bonkers place, which suits this Earl down to a T because he is sort of a bonkers Earl. And they have, um, he is one of those people who comes from a family that had the cabinet of curiosities and just never stopped collecting. So every generation has just amassed more and more and more. Um, and I, in the book right before this one, An Impossible Imposter, we get to see part of why this collection is so out of control because just on a whim, he buys um, a, an entire opera company's worth of 
scenes and costumes and everything thinking oh this is cool and he brings all of these things in there's coins there's art there's weaponry there's statues tapestries he brings all these things in and he wants veronica and stoker to catalog them because he wants to open a museum and so they live on his estate in england in london um in marlebone doing this for him that is their that's their day job uh, when they're not off sleuthing, but he's a he's a very understanding employer. He he lets them kind of scamper off all the time. So does he actually support them financially, or does he just give them a place to live and jobs to do? He pays them a wage. He does. Okay. He does pay them a wage. They get room and board and uh, a modest wage, but they also have the freedom to take commissions because Stoker is a lot of times refurbishing uh, his bent in. Uh, natural history is taxidermy. Right. Um, he believes that dead things deserve dignity. And so if they have been badly taxidermied, his goal is to rescue them and to make them magnificent again so that people will want to preserve them out in the wild. Um, and people will will appreciate them um, instead of mocking them as oddities. Uh, because there was a huge vogue in the late Victorian period for um, really just horrifically bad taxidermy. Um, and, and tableau taxidermy, um, where you would have, you know, a whole, the worst one is where, uh, that I've seen is two dozen kittens all dressed up for a wedding. And so it's all these little stuffed cats with the bride cat and the groom cat and all the little bridesmaid cats. And it's horrifying, but that was a, that was a very big deal. Um, Stoker would die. Stoker would not approve. Um, and so his job is to do that. Veronica is taking commissions to, she now, instead of hunting butterflies in the wild, she has a vivarium, which right. is uh, uh, basically, it's, it's just a glass house where you can raise butterflies. And she waits till they die of natural causes, which butterflies do very accommodatingly in a short period of time. And then she mounts those and sells those to collectors. So um, she's kind of gathering her butterflies ethically now, um, right. instead of going out into the field and you know asphyxiating them as she used to do. There's a really uh, so, good butterfly vivarium in Boston, but we have one here in Scottsdale, or ooh. rather Phoenix in the Desert Botanical Garden. We have, yeah, we have a really, and every year, you know, they bring in um, a, a very large variety. It's planted with, you know, all sorts mm -hmm. of things that butterflies like. It's an elaborate entrance and exit process because oh, they yeah. have to make sure that the butterflies are not clinging to you. No hitchhikers. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, you're not bringing anything in, too. Mm -hmm. That's the other deal. And of course, you know, butterflies don't have a terrifically long life, um, but and they they time entrance to it, so you don't have so many people there that. And it's really fascinating, you know, to watch them, you know, flutter around and eat and drink and all the rest of it. Um, so we've got we've got one in Richmond, and I've been to the one in New Orleans, and the one in Washington D.C. And it's okay. always it's always different. Yeah. But it's always a fascinating experience just to go. And, you know, when they when they land on you, it's like magic uh, just mm -hmm. to to study them for a few minutes and to have that that close of an interaction with them. And if you're if you're calm and you're slow and you're deliberate in your movements, it's it's not dangerous to them. So no, uh, it's, it's not. There's it's a, a wonderful a major, experience. There's a, a major highway stretch between Quartzsite, Arizona and Yuma, which goes through an army artillery range and so forth, but it also is like the high road for the monarch butterfly to travel um, down to back oh, wow. to Mexico. And yeah. 
you know, the casualties from the moving vehicles to the butterflies <laughs> ratio is not good. Um, I'm sure. No, it's really not. I mean, butterflies are endangered just like everything else by climate, by people, the whole yep. bit. So, you know, it'd be sad to think that the only way we're ever going to see them in the future is, in fact, in the varium of one sort or another butterfly. That's why it's why I'm planting things outside that the pollinators like. I'm I'm trying yep. to attract them to my garden and and, you know, support them. Yeah, bees and butterflies, and in our case, hummingbirds. You know, we have um, the perfect climate, so we have hummingbird feeders, and you know, it's really fun. I put my first ones up last year. It was amazing. I have never seen them around here before, and we had one little dude who kept trying to get in the house. So after a couple of days, I went and bought feeders and hung them. And okay. by the end of the summer, I mean, we had we had half a dozen of them that would come every single yeah. day. Yeah, and, they're wonderful. Yeah. And they can buzz right by. It drives the puppies crazy. You know, they'll be inside. <laughs> they'll be this kind of low artillery that comes by, you know, bzzz, their ears go up and what's going on. But no, it's, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, I wish people could get away more from traditional lawns and so forth and do a lot more in the way of natural gardening. It's going to come to us in Arizona because we're going on to water rationing before too long. And, you know, all the grass and so forth is going to have to disappear in favor of desert plants and all, which I think personally will be a really good thing. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. Stoker is going to have an amazing taxidermy challenge at the family <laughs> estate. Now, where did you get the idea of dining in the dinosaur, which I thought was remarkable? Because it actually happened. It did. Yes. All of the wildest things that I put in my books have some germ of truth to them that actually happened during the Victorian period. There was um, uh, a, a dinner that happened inside the model of a dinosaur uh, right around the time of the Crystal Palace exhibition, uh, which was this massive exhibition of, you know, British uh, uh, goods and, you know, the, it, it was a chance to show off what Britain could do. It, it was it was kind of this love song to um, British industry. Right. And uh, one of the things that they did is they had this iguanodon dinner where there was a model of an iguanodon that was built and the top of it kind of opened up and it could seat like 10 or 12 people and they had an actual dinner inside this iguanodon. And I thought, oh, I'm using that. And it, it took me about eight years to find the right book to work it into, but this was that book. Um, and I loved the idea that um, at one point, Stoker's father had done a dinner like this, and it had been Stoker's favorite place to play when he was a child. And it's fallen into disrepair and had been hauled away from the estate. But that's how Tiberius lures him back in, is to say, hey, I've got a job for you fix the thing up and you can have it uh, because I want to have one of these kind of gala dinners inside this iguanodon, which is a ludicrous thing to do, but what kind of it's dinosaur so Tiberius. <laughs> what, what kind of dinosaur is it? I'm trying to remember because Stoker goes out there to repair it, but. And oh, it, Lord. <laughs> I know I'm trying to remember. Now, now you're putting me on the spot because well, as you and I were talking earlier before we went live, I turned in the next Veronica book after this one a week ago. So that's the book that's in my head. I understand. And it was my fault for not looking it up. But anyway, <laughs> there is some giant 
dinosaur thing, which is big enough to have a fairly substantial party. And yeah. Tiberius has it catered from the house. So, you know, it's got linen and napery and you know oh, of course you've got the candelabra you've got the you've got the string quartet outside playing music for you yeah. oh yeah it's full white glove service inside it really only is. the best dinosaurs will do fabulous anyway that comes towards <laughs> the end but i thought it was a wonderful set piece for you know yeah it's such a you know it's, it's just such a an unusual thing and we have this idea sometimes that victorians were just so staid um and and not at all whimsical and and right. it seems to me that this is a very whimsical thing to do to have dinner inside a dinosaur um and i love to show off the unexpected uh aspects of victoriana you know one of the one of the things i love most is to see the photographs uh and there aren't that many of them but the photographs where people are laughing um and and you know someone managed to catch them looking every bit the same as we do instead of just sitting there because they had to wait for these long exposures they caught them being real and human and less yeah. formal and you know less uptight than we expect that they were because they weren't actually well part of the problem was the photography process was a lengthy one and mm -hmm. you know it did freeze people because it, it wasn't like an instant shot with your phone you know it exactly. took the while for the exposure so i'm afraid that it did actually make people you know, look awfully static and awfully whatever. But the truth was, it was just because it took so long. I found the dinosaur, but it, did you? Well, I'm in the yeah. I'm finding the chapter, but I'm not sure that they've actually talked about what it is. But anyway, it's a truly fabulous scene. But that comes more towards the end of the book. So, in point of fact, there there is a murder. Um, so we can at least talk about the victim because the victim um, has been has been the original victim has been dead quite a while the original victim has been dead quite a while this is a this is a sleeping murder um that somebody has decided uh doesn't need to sleep anymore it needs investigating and this is a right. this is a, a death that happened that was thought to be accidental that happened some 20 years before um on one of these these trips that is like a grand tour where a bunch of young men were you know kind of um uh partying and seducing and studying their way around europe and tiberius was one of the young men on this trip and one of their companions um ends up dead and everyone assumes that at the time that it was an accident oh so sad um and they go on with their lives but now it's 20 years later and maybe it wasn't an accident and the young man died at the at the Revelstone Vane estate, right? He absolutely did. So that's the that's the connection then, because not only was Tiberius part of this uh, uh, group when the young man uh, died, it it right. actually happened um, at Sherboys, which is where the Templeton Vanes lived. Um, at this point, Tiberius's father was still the Viscount. You know, the old generation was still in charge of everything. But it, it was, you know, it was kind of a, a formative scarring experience for everybody. And it, it marked the end of, um, of their grand tour together. Um, and, and the friendship, you know, the, the group dispersed at that point and hasn't really kept in close contact since then. Right. So, you know, if you have a cold case, the only way generally they get revived in crime fiction is to have a newer crime committed. And then everybody goes, exactly. Ah. All right, I found the dinosaur. It's a, oh, what is it? He's a Megalosaurus. Oh yes, 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 yes. The Megalosaurus was a um, yeah. yeah. They were they were um, 
what I was looking for was a dinosaur that was um, of the correct geographical area for where the book was set and these they this would have been perfect for the the Devon Dorset area um so it it worked perfectly for for those purposes yeah yes so here's a here's a couple (laughs) lines that I think kind of set up this scene Stoker said nothing as we took our seats inside the make you know the dinosaur Tiberius himself had arranged the table placement, fixing the elegantly pinned place cards with his own hand. The table was narrow of necessity, for the Megalosaurus was not wide, but we squeezed into place with good-natured jostling and a bit of care. I just love that. Everybody kind of crowding inside the dinosaur. Well, when when you see the sketch of the Iguanodon dinner, in the 1860s, everybody was crammed in a little bit. You know, it wasn't one of these, usually you see kind of the very Downton Abbey effect where you've got, you know, four feet between you and the person right. next to you. This was this was a squash. Um, but I, and I think that's part of what made it kind of a convivial, unusual sort of an evening is, oh, we're actually rubbing elbows and, and you know, it, it's, it's an adventure. Uh, How did the women manage their skirts and all this that they were wearing? You know, was this, have we moved towards the bustle or are we still in the Yes. Okay. So this is 1889. So what we have is a very slender silhouette. Um, The bustle is starting to go down. Um, The original Iguanodon dinner in the 1860s, you had massive crinolines, but ladies were not invited. It was a gentleman's only affair. All right, got it. So back <laughs> to Women's History Month. Yay, women. Equality. So women got to come to my dinosaur dinner. I was trying to imagine if they'd <laughs> shown up in, you know, split skirts or just their, you know, pantaloons or something, but that wouldn't work. Okay, so, right. Wasn't the Crystal Palace in 1850? It was before Albert died. It was. It was definitely before oh. Albert died because he was one of the movers and shakers behind Absolutely. putting it all together. Um, it was one of his, because he, as Prince Consort, did not have a defined role. One of the things that that he undertook was to, um, he was very interested in things like public health and public housing and British industry. And right. so this was a way to kind of put out there, hey, this is what we can do. Look at us. We're so amazing. We're so industrious. We're so creative. We, you know, we have all these technological marvels. Um, and so that was that was something that uh, that he was very much um, associated with spearheading um, and cheerleading. He was he was very very big on it. He was there. You know, I've often wondered what would have happened if he hadn't died so young. She might easily have predeceased him because she was going to go on having children forever, as far as I can work. <laughs> Um, well, especially because by the time the last child was born, she was getting ether. So she was finally having, you know, childbirth that that was uh, almost pain free by the time she had the last one. So she might have carried on. Maybe, but, you know, that's a real toll on your body to have that many children. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say. It was Absolutely. 1849 when he conceived mm-hmm. the idea. Um, mm-hmm. Let me think it was it, it was hosted the Great Exhibition of London in 1851. Mm-hmm. So um and he died of whatever typhoid fever or whatever it was supposed to be not too long after that. But uh, yeah, about nine years, nine, nine years or so later. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, of course, Victoria plunged into mourning and, and that was that as far as she was concerned. Yeah, well, she 
ever did anything less than to excess. So you know, it's just part of her. Actually, that was, I've always thought the Hanoverian side of her, you know, because- Oh, absolutely. Because they were, I mean, all the Hanoverians were drama queens. Um, yeah. And I'm including the Kings in that. They they were always over the top with, uh, with their temper, with, you know, just uh, gambling to excess, everything. They They were just always over the top. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway- um, we can't say a whole lot more about the book. We've given you the general summation, which is that <laughs> Stoker is found in Bavaria, brought back by bribery to the <laughs> is, brought back to the state, which is located on the cliffs of Devon, in which there are fabulous fossils, and mm -hmm. a group of people assemble who were splintered by the death of one of their members many, many years ago, a couple of decades ago. And that's almost surely a recipe for something going wrong, right? Yes, indeed. And it does. Shenanigans ensue. Yeah, and indeed so. So <laughs> part of the question, though, that drives this book is whether, and you're pretty sure you know the answer, but and we won't actually give the answer, is whether Stoker is ever going to come around, stop sulking, and whether <laughs> what Veronica is thinking about their relationship and, you know, about herself. So that's part of the story, um, uh -huh. but it's going to be, you know, an ongoing, it is the ongoing thread that I think, you know, unites the series is their relationship and, you know, how they'll, how they'll navigate it. So have they actually gotten older in real time or are we, are you progressing incrementally? No, they've actually, they've aged. Um, the books, oddly enough, even though we're up to book eight, with this one, um, we've only passed about two and a half years since they first met. Right. Well, that's um, what I meant. It wasn't a book a year, but you know, they're they're great. No, they um they no, and it's funny because last year I went back and reread all of the um, Kinsey Milhone books. Right. And started trying to do the math and that just completely fell apart. Um, and still she managed to do this amazing series and it was so successful, even though the math was just doing my head in. Um, but I have I've kept them aging exactly along with the um, the adventures. And, and, you know, part of that is because there are some books that literally pick up the minute the previous book right. left off and others. It may be three months or six months between. This one takes place, I think, about three months after the previous book finished. Yeah, because uh, had, so we've had, had a little had gap. Time to go sulk, right? Yeah, he's got to have his epic sulk in Bavaria, which, I mean, honestly, you could find worse places to sulk. Bavaria is gorgeous. If you're going to go pout somewhere, pout in Bavaria. I agree, but I do think that's one of the advantages of writing historical fiction is you don't fall into that, you know, debate about whether your characters, as in contemporary series have to age in real time. And then there's the more difficult problem, which came up last night talking to David Rosenfeld. If you have a crucial dog as part of your ensemble cast, you absolutely have to make a decision about the dog. So while everybody- I know, I'm getting nervous. I'm getting nervous, Barbara, because I started with dogs in book one and we're, you know, we're. but thank God it's only been two and a half years because right. the dogs are all fine. The dogs are fine. I know. And I've made them. I've made the mistake of having them acquire several more dogs throughout the series. I think we have too many dogs at this point. I'm getting no, scared. You can't. Have too many dogs. <laughs> but it's the sad truth that dogs don't live long enough, and so you know you do have to they be do not. careful to um, 
if you introduce a dog. But you know, readers readers are great. Readers go along with it. Everybody else, you know, ages and the dog doesn't. <laughs> so, and not? I am fine with that. Uh, my these dogs will be immortal as far as I'm concerned. We're just never going to talk about how old they are. And I well, I mean, I feel like I can get away with it because I already have Patricia the Galapagos tortoise, who is at this point, um, I mean, God only knows how old Patricia is. Yeah, but, but Galapagos tortoises, in fact, do live forever. So. Exactly, exactly. So just why not go along with it for the dogs too? Just let everything keep living. It's fine. I love it. So there will be um, a book nine. Do we have a title for book nine yet? Um, we do not have an official title, um, at least not one that I'm allowed to say. Right. Um, I yeah. think I, I think it's been approved, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, but yeah, we have a book nine. It got turned in last week. My editor's reading it now. So yay! Well, it'll be out in a year. So <laughs> Always good news. Now, over there behind um, Deanna is another book called Colors of a Certain Age. I was regrettably not present when she came to the bookstore in September. I think it was September, late August, whenever it was. It was right? September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. were at VoucherCon. I was. Uh, all that, no, I was on the Mississippi. That was it. I went to BoucherCon and took advantage of the fact that St. Paul to St. Louis is a week on a riverboat. And I'd wanted, there you go. I've been on great rivers all over the world. And I said to my husband, surely, surely we should do the Mississippi if we, you know, going to do all these others. And it was great. But anyway, it was a huge success. Um, and it taps into something that um, is kind of a thing at the moment which is the the senior sleuth you know <laughs> years, all we had was Dorothy Gilman and Mrs. Polifax and yeah. then sadly Dorothy died and Mrs. Polifax went with her um but I've noticed that there's um a number of quite a number of books in which seniors are now we, you know we've been talking about women finding agency women being empowered but it's also great to see that seniors are beginning to find more agency and become empowered so give us a brief little synopsis of killers of a certain age for people who have been unlucky enough not to have read it yet it is a contemporary thriller and it is about four female assassins who are 60 years old and who are on the cusp of retirement and they realize the organization they work for would rather see them dead than let them retire so they have to kind of band together and figure out how to handle that problem Wow. You know, years ago, there was a paperback series, and I can't remember the name of the author, but it was really terrific. But anyway, the basic premise of it was that the guy's father, who was who had entered into dementia, and who the guy thought all his life had been a washing machine salesman, turned out to actually have been working for the CIA or something. Anyway, he was a spy, and he was so dangerous through dementia as a as a spy that his own agency tries to kill him and that I is a fantastic premise it really was it was an absolutely terrific book and you know but i thought about that afterwards you know what what in fact would a security agency do if one of its one of its agents somebody with real secrets you know mm -hmm. went into um an untrustworthy, unstable state like dementia and might actually reveal things that nobody wanted. I mean, it's all well and good to say, you know, that you took the, um, whatever the people at Bletchley and all did, well, mm -hmm. it's called the something else. But, you know, if you couldn't remember that you'd taken it, 
but you remembered some of the things you did, you'd be a real menace. It's the official secrets. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But what if you couldn't remember that you'd taken it? I, that is a gorgeous question. And um, I think we need to track down someone who works for the security services and find out. <laughs> program run by part of the CIA. But anyway, you know, I love killers of a certain age. And oh, it would be, thank you. It would be great to see them back. Patrick, come and join us and see if there are any questions from the audience or any that you have. Yeah, Patrick, come say hi. There's Patrick. I'm here. Here we go. <laughs> I was trying to remember that series, Barbara, and the one that you were just talking about. And wasn't the guy's last name Thompson? Yeah, Keith Thompson. Keith Thompson. Well right. Done. I'll look him up on my phone while you're asking, Deanna. Right. It'd be fun yeah. to remember the name of it. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I have a question for you. Um, has ping pong ever featured into any of your books? When did that ping pong craze start? Was that Victorian or Edwardian? That I could not tell you. I am I am not a ping pong aficionada. I uh, enthusiast. No, I'm not. I a couple of years ago, I was on a writer retreat with friends, and there was a ping pong table in the basement, and we played. And I said, "Yeah, fine, I'll play." But I was wearing a a, a kimono and three inch feathered slippers, so I I was not good. As uh, I, I was terrible at it. Um, but no, I'm 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 not remotely athletic. And to me, ping pong falls into that category. So no. It was, it I, was I, a big thing in the Edwardian age, or maybe it was Edwardian age. It feels like crazy. it feels like it would have been late Victorian or Edwardian. Yeah. That it has that vibe to it. Like badminton. Right. Let's see, what else do I have here? Um well, we had a number of people asking about book two in the series, in the, the new series. Um, let's see. Ah, yes, uh, Alana is, is bringing up um, uh, The Slow Horses, the series by Mick Heron, which is also genius. Mm. I uh, love, love, love that series. And if great? you are, oh, but if you have Apple TV, yep. Right. The adaptation is phenomenal. It is That's it right. is the single best adaptation of a novel I've ever seen. Um, it is beautifully written. You can smell Gary Oldman through the TV. Uh, yeah. And it's it's fantastic I, because so, I had actually not read the books. I started by watching the series and thought it was so phenomenal. I went and started reading the books now. So I'm, I think I'm up to real tigers. Okay. okay. I'm, I read one and then I wait for a few weeks before I read another one. I'm trying to spread them out, uh, but they're, it's so well done. Yeah, Gary Oldman is just so, you he know. He is phenomenal. He was so great in some of the Lacari things too as well. I looked right. at Edmonton. It's derived directly from Pune, played by British Army officers stationed in India in the 1860s and then brought back to England as a game. Okay, so that's badminton. That's badminton. Did we, okay, did we find out ping pong? Because that was Patrick's. Oh, I'm sorry, it was ping pong. I, for some reason, thought it was badminton. Um, I went off. To, I went off on a badminton tangent. That was me. Yeah, but but, but okay. Patrick, Patrick wanted to know about ping pong. All and right, I, I, I have let him down. It was in England in the late 19th century. Table tennis made its appearance, taking inspiration from lawn tennis. And the first oh, players belonged to middle class Victorian society. And they played it using a champagne cork as a ball and cigar boxes as bats and books for the net. 
And you know, they probably did it because it rains so much. They needed an indoor version of it. Yeah. And did you, you know, see? That's, what, that's what a lot of those, you know, halls and great rooms in those big mansions turned into indoor gymnasiums for people, mm -hmm. you know, for kids as well. Yeah, they absolutely did. And and Victorians would move in, you know, the, the stationary rings and pommel horses and, you know, all sorts of different exercise equipment. They would lift weights. And people don't think of Victorians as being on the, the health craze, but they absolutely were. Um, mm. That's why there was this gorgeous gym on the Titanic, uh, which was Edwardian, not Victorian, but it was not a brand new thing for Edwardians to be going into physical fitness. No. There's a scene. Did you ever see that that great series called Penny Dreadful that came yes. out? A fantastic series. I did not, but there are actually yeah. some pictures up there. This is my murder wall. I made a murder wall for the book that I just did. And so you can only see the half of it. You can't see the part that actually refers to the murder itself and all the suspects. You can only see okay. the Veronica and Stoker and recurring characters section. But there, there are a few shots of Ava Green from Penny Dreadful up there. There's a scene in there where there's a hall and everybody's playing ping pong, which is why, <laughs> which is why I thought of it. You know, it, it was a thing, a ping pong craze. Sorry to take you off on this ping pong tangent. But... I love it. We're going to put <laughs> ping pong into a future book, Patrick, and it'll be just for you. Awesome. Um, <laughs> there's some really good comments. Uh, let's see. Any chance we'll see Veronica on screen? Emily asks. Oh, I would love that. I know, uh, I know discussions are being had, but I don't know if anything will come of it. It's very, very, very early days. So, but I, I think that would be so fun. It would be fun. I have to point out that it's really expensive to do historical series. So expensive. Everybody the, balks at doing yeah. historicals for that very reason. That's right. It's just, you know, you could do it in Britain because they've held on to a lot of things that are necessary, but um, they are very, very costly to do. Well, they've got, I mean, they've got the horses, they've got the carriages, right. they've got, you know, so many of the buildings that you would need. It's much, much easier to shoot it over there. Um, yes. One could hope that Bridgerton would kind of, you know, encourage people to mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah, because there's such a market for it. I mean, people yeah. absolutely love a good historical series to get their teeth into, but we shall see. Well, I hope for the best. I have to say that maybe the challenge of the dinosaur dinner might interest somebody. It would be so great. You should lure somebody in to want to make this, right? How can you resist a dinosaur dinner? Very hard. Uh, it's funny, as if on cue, Pat asks, is an electric eel party next? <laughs> oh, my God. You know what? Just keep the ideas coming. Just keep them coming. It's right. cool. <laughs> um, okay, uh, let's see here. Karen would like to know, which of your characters are you most fond of? Oh, my God. That's so unfair. It's like asking who your favorite child is. Um, of course, I only have one child, so that's an easy answer for me. Um, I, I, Veronica, of course, because she's the one whose head I have to be in all the time, because since these are told first person, I have to have her viewpoint. Um, I am also, I have a very, very soft spot for Billy who is one of the four assassins in Killers of a Certain Age. There are aspects of a lot of women I knew growing up that I incorporated their kind of spirit into uh, Billy because I wanted, I wanted her to stand as a sort of an homage to all of these incredible women I knew um, in Texas growing up 
you know, she's she's a techno prisoners kind of woman. Um, and uh, I, I knew a lot of women who were like that in very different circumstances. None of them were assassins, um, but they were all women who were indomitable. Um, so I, I do have a, a very special soft spot for Billy too. And I love my boys. I mean, I love Stoker. I love Tiberius, my little chaos monkeys. I love them all. I really love Tiberius. I mean, Stoker's always been intriguing, but Tiberius is fabulous. By the way, I found it. It's Keith Thompson and it's called Thompson without a P and it's called Once a Spy. Once a Spy, that's right. Once a cool. Spy. And I suspect- And does the pen have copies? You know, I, I'm afraid that the print copies are it's out, probably of, out of print at this point, and yeah. it's probably digital because it was a long time ago. But honestly, they mass market PBOs, Barbara? Hmm? Were they mass market paperback originals? Yeah, they were. I thought so, yeah. Yeah, and so they probably don't have much of a long shelf life. But mm -hmm. he was a lovely guy, and he actually brought a drone for, I think, the third one and flew it around the bookstore, which was very exciting. Um, wow i know now we've had some we we actually with stephen hunter at one point got a permit from the city of scottsdale to set up a shooting range in the parking lot of the bookstore so stephen could bring his guns and everybody could try firing at targets we've had some real adventures. okay i'm gonna i'm gonna have to up my game when i come for appearances clearly i'm just not bringing it I'm i don't do anything like that no, but now, live ammo. now that we have the dinosaur dinner, <laughs> now that oh we have we should we should think about it. Maybe we could have a series of small dinosaurs dotted around the parking lot with. I love it. Yeah, it could be kind ping of a dating game. With ping pong afterwards. Yes, Patrick. Right. Yes. That's right. Absinthe. <laughs> Absinthe and ping pong. Love it. Oh, my um, Okay, let's see here. There was a good question in here. Well, Amy says, uh, there's enough tragedy in life. Fictional dogs should never die. See, nice this is what I think. I said amen to that. We all agree. Uh, Alana asks, have you seen the Netflix series, The Law According to Lydia Poet? She says, Gordon. No, 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 but it's on my watch list because it only came out, I think, last week or the week before. And I've heard great things about it. It's a uh, Victorian series. It's, um, I think it's it's Italian and it's dubbed, isn't it? Not sure. But she says they're gorgeous costumes that kind of remain. It's what made called her. what? The Law According to What? Lydia Poet. Oh. It is, she, it's, it's about, um, I think it's about one of uh, Italy's first female attorneys. And it takes place, it's late Victorian. And it just, it looks gorgeous. And I've heard great stuff about it. I just, I, I haven't gotten caught up on my viewing yet after turning the book in. Okay, I'm she making says, Yeah, it, it's dubbed and it also has captions. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I love watching, uh, you know, foreign productions on Netflix. That's one of my favorite things in the world is to get yeah. my, because I find if, it, if I have to watch and read at the same time, I don't multitask. I'm not on my phone. I'm not trying to do other, I'm not trying to pay bills. I'm not trying to, I just watch and it's very restful. We jump over MHZ TV kiddo is where you belong. <laughs> they, have, they have absolutely got the most amazing stuff. Rob and I are completely addicted to watching and the French astonishingly seem to do the best. They're Excellent. astonishing French besides Call My Agent, which I truly loved. But there's some other um, French drama that are are wonderful. I've watched the British version of Call My Agent, and I've got the French version 
in my in my queue is better it, it really i'm is. sure because it was the original i wasn't it yeah it is the original but the very best thing i have seen on television in years is the extraordinary attorney woo and if you have not seen extraordinary also on my queue I, I've got to get my fanny in the chair and start watching this stuff because it's there's so many good things out there. Addictive. You'll love the whales. Oh, good. Good. You'll love the whales, right? Good. It's Korean. And don't watch it. Don't watch it translated. Watch it in Korean with the subtitles. Oh, always. I never, I never watch anything dubbed. I, I like to listen to the language that I don't understand. It always has a rhythm that, that I feel like you lose completely. If yeah. you watch it when it's uh, dubbed. I agree. All right. Anything else there, Patrick? Yes. Yeah, Patrick, uh, what you got? Any chance of further adventures of Lady Julia and Brisbane? <laughs> um, no plans at present. Um, never say never. Uh, my previous publisher ended the series, but I actually own the characters. Um, I just have my hands full at the moment with uh with veronica so uh that's where my focus is um but again never say never who knows what's going to happen down the road but we really miss her i mean i thought they were wonderful so Thank i wish you. i'm glad to hear you actually own them again yep they are mine so if i if i want to do something fun with them i absolutely can so have you ever thought of like a, have you ever thought of a through line between your your contemporary set series and maybe having them uh, have ancestors that were in this, <laughs> I don't know, that may be. A no, story. you know, the, the um, Killers of a Certain Age is, is um, it, it's a different vibe. Uh, yeah. the, the, the fact that I am technically a thriller writer now just blows my mind um, because I am the world's biggest chicken. Uh, I never, ever, ever read thrillers. And then a couple of years ago, I was getting ready to go on vacation, getting to go put my little feet up on a Caribbean beach. And I was so excited. And I was trolling through the bookstore looking for, because I always take a big old stack of books when I go to a beach. And I saw Oyinkin Braithwaite's My Sister, the Serial Killer. And the cover was so phenomenal because it's got this beautiful young black woman on the cover and she's got these incredible green sunglasses. And when you look closely, you realize there's a knife and it's absolutely terrifying. And I thought this is the coolest looking book I have seen in a long time. I'm going to be brave. I'm going to read it. I'll be on a beach. I can see if someone's going to come and try to murder me while I'm reading it. And it was incredible. And that's what got me into thrillers. I still have to be careful when I read them though. Like I don't, I don't, if I'm alone in the house, I really don't want to read one. But so I, the idea of writing one and the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm referred to now as a thriller writer. I, there's a part of me that just has to laugh. What's the name of the Mick Heron series? Is it called what? Slow Horses? Slow Horses. horses. That's yeah. A, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the name of the um, Apple adaptation. Right, right. And it's the name of the first book. Slough House. Slough House. Slough yep. House. Yeah. You know what? He was a really good writer beforehand. I used to love his crime fiction, but he wrote these kind of obscure things that nobody, and I don't know, you know, it's so interesting that people can write a long time before mm -hmm. they, they sort of write something that really captures readers and the market. And that was true for Mick because, um, I, you know, Patrick, I brought his books in from London for a long time, right? Because right. um, awesome. I thought he was such a good writer, but they were modest books, 
you know, with a modest following. So it was no surprise when Slow Horses. Well, and I was I was so excited when I realized that he had so many books out yeah. in this series because I thought, oh, that's my reading set. You know, I'll do one a month for a year and be super happy. I'm I'm spreading them out because there aren't as many as I would like, but there are still, I mean, there's a good what, eight or ten in the series? Yeah, and there's a new one coming in September too. So yay. Right. <laughs> he was here with John Sanford. Remember, John was a big such a fan that fan. he made me, he made me get the publisher to bring Nick here. John's a big club, so I was able to say to the publisher, "If you will bring Nick here into Scottsdale, John Sanford will come over and run the program for you." And they thought, nice. "Oh, okay." So they did. <laughs> I'm wonderful. Just, I don't know where I was, New Zealand, I think, but you know, I was really sad that I wasn't there for it. Oh, that's right, you weren't there. Yeah, no, I wasn't. Well, let's see. I think the only, okay, here's one last question, maybe. Uh, Dow asks, any good museum, gardens, et cetera, that you would recommend to get us ready for the next uh, Victoria Speedwell, she said Victoria, and then corrected herself, Veronica Speedwell Adventure. Ooh, museum in this country or, or in another country? Yeah. I don't know. It's a good, she didn't really specify. Well, I mean, if it were I, I would recommend the Ashmolean in Oxford, mm -hmm. which is a small uh, museum that arose from exactly what uh, I want, Deanna, not Veronica, Deanna and I were talking <laughs> about, which is a, a private collection. The British Museum, <clears throat> the library has moved out and it's now mm -hmm. the British Library, but the, yep. um, the specimens that we've been talking about are there in the British Museum and there are drawers and drawers. I mean, it's it's really a phenomenal way of um, looking at them. I don't think the John Soames House, I think that's more an architectural museum. It is, and I love Sir John Soames House. It's a little yeah. teeny museum uh, in London and Lincoln's Inn Fields. It's, uh, but it is yeah. the entire house is a museum. So in that respect, it's a little bit like the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, but hers was much more art focused. His was much more architecture. Right. Um, in this it, country, it, the Smithsonian would be your kind of obvious answer, don't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, and if you're looking in New York City, I'm I'm a huge fan of the Frick, uh, but Me it's too. not it's currently not right open now. right now. Um, the collection's been moved over. I think they're in a gallery on Fifth, uh, a temporary space there. Um, and a little, not everybody who goes to the Met in New York City makes it up to the cloisters, um, and you absolutely should because um, it's medieval. It's nothing to do with Veronica's time period, but I'm smitten with. Uh, with the cloisters just because it's this little jewel box of a museum which is where the unicorn tapestries are and i will give you a hint from my granddaughter pay attention because they are hung out of order for the story Ooh. they tell so now you've got a mystery to solve if you yeah. go look at the tapestries at the cloisters figure it out i i'm <laughs> to say that i have visited them probably a dozen times and never noticed until i took my six-year-old love <laughs> it who said Grandma, she said, the story is interrupted. It's not right. And I realized because they have hung them, they have to fit the room. And in order to do it, they had to hang the tapestries out of order. Who knew? I love it. I love it. So there we are. Anyway, Stefani, if you were watching, I want to thank you for your beautiful Christmas card, which I somehow just stumbled upon. Um, but it's she's our Italian 
um, fan who lives in Genoa, right, Patrick? I think she's in Genoa. I think so. Yeah, she's but not anyway, the first one for whatever reason. Nina Grazie, as we say. Thank you very much for the beautiful Christmas card. And thank you all for watching uh, another wonderful conversation with Deanna, which I hope will be for real next year. With Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's always just such a joy to chat with y'all. Well, we love having you and uh, a sinister revenge. We should have signed copies probably tomorrow, but anyway, certainly by the end of the week. So yes. uh, we don't have a huge number unclaimed. So if you're interested, <laughs> I would, I would um, hasten to poisonpen.com and click on the web store and order yours before we run out. So thank you, Veronica. <laughs> thank you, Veronica. Thank you, Veronica, Deanna. I'll take it. I'll take Patrick. it. Thanks very much. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.